Amen. All right, the eighth chapter of Romans again, and I want to draw your attention to verse number 28. Between verses 28 and the end of the chapter, which is verse 39, uh, we have entitled this section of Scripture, uh, this is my title, this is not anything you're going to find in the Bible as far as uh, given a title to this section, but I've simply entitled this section, The Saving Acts of God. The Saving Acts of God. And what we see in these verses is we see not only how God works all things according to His purposes, but how all those things that are being worked are being done according to His doings or according to His desires. We see in the very first verse we're going to deal with today, we see a verse that is often used. We use this verse to to try to encourage people that are going through something difficult. It's, it is one of the go-to verses. Uh, I would submit to you that this particular verse in its context needs to be understood before we uh, just simply use that uh, because Paul is speaking to a very specific group of people and he's speaking to them based upon how God works. Uh, if you look with me at verse number 28, the Bible in Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren." Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now we'll stop there this morning because we're, we're going to be lucky if we get out of verse 28. And um, because we're going to be dealing this morning with that first expression that's found in verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. That phrase alone be leads us into what the next phrase is. To them who are called, who are the called according to his purpose. Now, Romans 8.28 to the believer is an extremely encouraging statement. There are things today, there are certain people, there are certain ideas, principles that we can say we know about these things or we know that person. But there are also people today who say about believers, they say about Christians, that we really know nothing. In other words, uh, we are... Uh, some people believe that religion or believers, uh, they need a crutch, that God is some type of a crutch, or God is something that is only for weak people. Uh, maybe you've heard that, uh, maybe you haven't. But they will say about us, uh, they don't really know anything. They, they are believing in a fable, they're believing in fairy tales, they're believing in things uh, that really are not true. But we do know this. The Bible shows us here that we do know that all things, look what he says, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. So here is this very specific group of people who actually know something. The phrase, we know this. 
Now, we, we live in a society of know-it-alls, right? We live in a society of people that say, I know about this, we know this, we know how to do this, we know how to accomplish this. But here is a great distinction being made between a certain group of people. Again, Paul is writing to believers, and he says that we know that all things work together for good. Now, if you give that phrase to a, a non-believer, a non-believer does not see it that way. When they're going through a difficulty or they're going through something in their life and you try to tell them, try to tell a non-believer when they're going through some kind of a struggle, say, well, here's what we know. We know that all things work together for good. They'll say, what do you mean? How can this be good? How can what I'm looking at now be good? Paul is saying that this group of we are believers. We know that all things work together for good to whom? To them that love God. So there is the, there's the pin in all of this. The people who know that all things work together for good are those who love God. So if I don't love the Lord, if I don't love God, I'm not going to be able to say that. Now, how many times have we tried to comfort somebody with those words? Well, we know all things work together for good. Well, the reality is, is this, this, there's a great distinction between these two thoughts of believing it and actually knowing it. Uh, evidently, when we look at this thought and we think about what is it to, what is it to love the Lord, uh, the word love or the word to know, uh, this is more than just knowing, this is believing. Often we try to make a distinction between what we know and what we believe. Are, are you following me? We try to make a distinction between what we know and what we believe. But here's, here's the great distinction between it. There really is not a distinction. We understand this. To know is to believe. To believe is to know. Paul is not just saying we, we have this nebulous idea of what we know. Well, we could just as easily see Paul writing this. And we believe that all things work together for good. Okay? Knowing and believing are the same thing when we think about it from a believer standpoint. But here's what we can also say. Uh, if you read the book of John, which we're going through obviously in our first service on Sundays, there are phrase after phrase after phrase of we know, we know. When you see the words we know, you often see it associated with the phrase we believe. Kind of like what Peter said, we believe and are sure. That what we saw this morning, Peter could have very easily said, we know that thou art the Christ. We know, we are sure, and we believe those things. We believe as collective saints today, as children of God, we believe that this is knowing God. Now, when we understand about believing and believing and knowing being the same thing, we have a right to know, not because of our own uh, merits, but we have a right to know because of who we know. We know Christ. We are in God. So this is, this is a certainty. And I'm hammering this because Paul doesn't write this as just some kind of a flimsy thing to kind of grasp at. He says, we know it's a matter not of opinion. It's not a matter of perspective. It's a matter of certainty. Now, when we understand how Paul speaks here, mark it very closely how Paul writes. 
He does not say that all things will work together for good. Okay, look what he says. He says, we know that all things work together for good. So what he's not saying is that it's all going to work out for good sometime. Are you, are you all seeing that? It's, it's, he doesn't say we know that all things will work together. He's saying all things are working together for good to them that love God. There is a difference in that. If we view the Christian life and we view even our everyday lives as something that we say to this, well, I know all things will work together. Someday we'll see the good of this. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying right now they're working together. Everything, all things are working together now. They are working together for what? For good. Now, this is just kind of a, a preview to where we're going with this. The word good here, work together for good, doesn't necessarily mean present comfort. Okay? It doesn't necessarily mean that. If all we do is look at these purposes of God and look at things and say, God is only working for my present comfort, that all these good things are for my present deliverance, I'm going to miss it. Paul, as he has had through the entire book and through the entire chapter of Romans 8, has had an eternal perspective on these things. Now, I do believe there's present comfort to the believer when things are not going so well. All right, I believe there is a present comfort by saying we know that all things work together for good. But they're working now. This is not something that we can say it will eventually turn out right. According to what God is saying, he's telling us it's all right now. Now, again, you may look at your life circumstances and you may say it's not all right now. I can tell you right now it's not okay for me. But notice, again, it's God's purpose. Look at the end of verse 20. We'll come back. According to his purpose. Our definition of good, unless it's viewed through the eyes of God is often distorted. Good is based upon what we see, what we feel, what we experience. If you say, I feel good today, it's because you are experiencing something that is working right. That's why you feel good. I feel good because something is working right. In God's purposes, it doesn't always feel like things are working right. But according to God's word, they are working towards good according to his purpose now. Again, who does he say? We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Well, in the next few verses over the next few weeks, we'll find out who are, this is bad English, who are the them that love God? Who are them? The called, which is what he says, to them who are the called. He doesn't say to them who are called. It says the called. That means there's a distinction. So this verse, Romans 8.28, is not just talking in a general sense. So when I tell just anybody or just throw it out there, said, hey, look, all things are going to work out. Romans 8.28. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's already saying all things are working together for good to them that love God, those who are the called according to his purpose. So we have distinctions here that are being made. Now, no sooner 
Does Paul use the word purpose? Is what leads him into a discussion of verses 29, 30, and 31, which make up what's often referred to as the golden chain of God's salvation. It's called golden chain for a number of reasons, but it's a chain or the links that are required for the salvation of a soul. In other words, the way God works, what God does, what God is accomplishing is all according to his purpose. He's doing what he's doing according to his purposes. Now again, think about what Paul was saying. We know that all things, we know this. Here's one thing Paul's never ashamed to talk about scripturally. Paul was never ashamed to speak about the providence of God. Paul never shied away from the providential acts of God. In our nine o'clock, we talked today about the divine presence of God, and we talked about the divine providence of God. Paul was not afraid of that term. Paul was not afraid to use words like foreknow. Paul was not ashamed to use words like predestinate. Paul was not ashamed to use words like the called, the justified, the glorified. Paul was not afraid to speak of the decrees of God. He was not afraid to speak of the saving acts of God. The saving acts of God are the purposes of God. The saving acts of God are the purposes of God. When God reaches down and saves the soul, they are the saving acts of God. They are God's purposes being carried out. There are preachers today that say nothing about the purposes of God. They say nothing about the decrees of God. They say nothing about the sovereignty of God. They don't mention the word providence. They don't mention these words because they're afraid of it being labeled as something. They're afraid of being labeled as a particular follower of a particular man. They're afraid of being uh, labeled as a Calvinist or a Calvinistic doctrine. They're afraid of those words. And by the way, that is a misnomer. Long before John Calvin ever lived, this doctrine was here. If you begin to say you're a Calvinist or you're Calvinistic, you are talking about something that's a follower of a man. That's not what this is about. I'm not a follower of any man, nor should you be. What you should be is a follower of the word of God. What Paul is talking about here existed many, many centuries before Calvin was ever around. So this is not Calvinistic doctrine. This is the doctrine of the Bible. And that's an important distinction. Now, there are people who will label you this way, okay? I'm just telling you, folks, they're going to label you this way because that's the only name they can give it. But the truth is, is that the saving acts of God, these scriptures that tell us, really no man has a right to claim ownership of this. I mean, can you imagine being a man who claimed a theology for yourself? I can't do that. I can't say this is my theology or this is the theology of this man. We're not followers of a, of a theologian. We're the followers of what the Bible says. So if the Bible didn't say it, we wouldn't even talk about it. If the Bible doesn't speak of it, it would not be something we would need to mention. But listen to what Paul was saying here regarding this, these links or this chain of these saving acts of God. What we learn from verse 28 is that God governs all things by his providence according to his purpose. Okay? God governs all things 
by his providence according to his purpose. When we approach the saving acts of God, understanding that, that God governs all things, he governs them by his providential hand, and the providence of his hand moves according to his purposes. In other words, God doesn't do anything just at random. Nothing random has happened with God. Uh, There's never been a soul saved at random. There's never been anything that's happened at random. That's why we say there is no coincidences with God. I just realized I I had a slip of the tongue early and I used the word lucky. I shouldn't have used that word. I said, well, you're lucky if we get through verse 28. (laughs) It's not luck. But that's the way our minds work. We tend to think that there's this providential hand of God that works in some things and works in some manners. And then there's other things that God just kind of pulls his hands away and he's not involved in. So people try to compartmentalize their life and they say, uh, this, is, this, is, this is my God life and this is my non-God life. There, there is no distinction between the two. God's governing all things. Or if something bad happens to them, they say, uh, this must not be of God. Or the reverse of that. If, this is some, if it is something bad happening, they say, this must be God punishing me. Are you all following me? There's this idea that says some things are the hand of God, other things are not the hand of God. If God governs all things and he's working all things together for good to them that love God, to them who are it, the called according to his purpose, that all things includes the good and the bad. Now, I may not understand the bad, but I will also submit this to you. We don't even understand the good. Humanly speaking, we think when good happens, all is right. When bad happens, all is wrong. In the eyes of God, he's governing all things, good and bad. Remember, the good is not just necessarily the present comfort. There's an, there is the, the glory of God that is being worked out in your life and my life that is an eternal perspective that we do not see at all. You don't see it. I can't point you to it. Paul's talking about something that is much bigger than just simply saying, okay, all things are going to turn out well. If you're having a bad day, just hold out. Tomorrow will be better. That's God working all things for good. That's not what Paul had in mind. It's something much deeper than that. To say that we know Paul is not expressing just an idea of what he thinks to be, to be right. The phrase, and we know, is to know as surely... We know that this is to be true just as sure as we are that we're redeemed by the blood of Christ. In other words, if you're sure that you're saved today, you're sure that you're a child of God, then this phrase, we know that all things work together for good, ought to be just as certain. So here's what we could do. We could run around this room today and we could say, okay, do you believe you're redeemed? Do you believe you're saved? And you could say, yes, I believe that. Then you ought to believe that God governs all things by his providence according to his purpose. You ought to believe that just as certainty. Certainly just as much. Think about what you're doing. You are sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. But yet you're not so sure that in the day-to-day, everything that's going on, that God's working together for good. You see, you can't have one without the other. It's an amazing thing. We'll trust God's sovereignty and salvation but we will kind of discount it in our day-to-day lives. 
And I think we're all guilty of that. I think we all at times say, you know what, I'm not so sure God's in this. People ask the question all the time, do you think God's in it? <laughs> yes. Because according to them that love God, he's in it. He's in all of those things. He's working those things together. Now, again, don't use God as some kind of a genie in the lamp. I've heard people say God's in it and God's leading me to do this and it's something extra biblical and they're leading them. That's not what I'm talking about. But to say God's hand is not in this matter, but it's in this matter, I think we're missing the point. How many things are we to know to be certain about? He says that all things, all things. We know about God the Father. We know about God the Son. We know about God the Holy Spirit. We know about the, the, the evil things. We know about Satan. We know about all the good events that take place. We know about peace. We know what it is to have good health, prosperity. We know what it is to be content, to be happy. But he's also over things that aren't such good events. Wars, famines, sorrows, sicknesses, death. See, the, the, there's a belief out there that God is only the God of the good things. That when we see good things happen, that's God. When we see bad things happen, that's Satan. So immediately we make this distinction. All the good things, quotes, all the good things are of God. All the bad things, quotes, are of Satan. So we, we again to just attribute God as just the good things. Now, he is working together for good. According to what? His purposes. What I don't understand about God is I don't understand how God even takes bad events, bad circumstances, and is using that to accomplish his purpose. That's the hardest conversation you have with anybody. How can any good come out of this? That's the eternal perspective. And it's something that we often fail to see. Look at the phrase, work together. These things that we know, all of these things are not only our present things. They are operating in us and toward us, but they are cooperation under God's direction. In other words, what could appear to be a bad event in a person's life or a bad event in, in a situation actually is working out for good. What is the good? The purpose of God. The good is the purpose of God. Therein is where the disconnect takes place. How can this be good? Because it's the purpose of God. Let me take you to an Old Testament illustration, Genesis 45. Go back to Genesis 45. And again, we cannot study this man's life from beginning to end, but this is a, an account of Joseph. And we all realize what happened to Joseph. Joseph had, uh, by our today's standards, would be one of the most dysfunctional families the world's ever seen, right? Joseph's own brothers hated him. Joseph's own brothers considered him to be the favorite of his father. They decided one day, we hate Joseph, so I think let's put a ploy together to throw Joseph into a pit. Let's kill him. We don't want anything to do. Now, you think your family's dysfunctional. There's dysfunction right there. Joseph, throughout all of his journeys, we could study about Joseph's life and how Joseph, it appeared, was getting a very bad deal about everything that was taking place. 
In Genesis 45, this is the account when Joseph's brothers appear before him. Now, Joseph, at, by this point, has ascended into leadership in Egypt. I mean, think about this. Now, he's, he's under Pharaoh. This, this has been an ascension that nobody could have ever put these things together. But the Bible says in Genesis 45:1, Then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him, and he cried, Cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him, while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph. Doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. Uh, this is a stunning revelation. Joseph's brothers are standing before their brother who they thought was dead. They thought he was gone. This is stunning. Joseph stuns his brothers by revealing his identity. He says, I'm Joseph. How is our father? His brethren or his brethren could not answer him for they were troubled at his presence. I think we'd all been troubled. And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near, and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. Now, do you imagine there was any point in time when Joseph had to have been wondering, what in the world have I done wrong? I'm, fine. I'm in Egypt. I've been sold by my brothers. I mean, let's be honest. Let's, let's, let's put the real humanity in Joseph. Every one of us is saying, okay, I'm going to Egypt. Purposes of God. I'm good. Purposes of God. Not a one of us is thinking that. He sold into, he sold into basically slavery into Egypt by his own brothers. Now, therefore, be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves. <laughs> don't, be, don't, be, don't be grieving. Don't be mad at what you did to me. You know, we're thinking about, boy, if, I, if I'd had the opportunity to get back at the family that sold me, boy, I'm, I'm not taking Joseph's appearance. I'm, I am, I'm getting revenge. For God did send me before you to preserve life. Wow. So instead of saying, I can't believe what you guys did to me, he acknowledges God did this. And at the same time, Joseph is forgiving He's forgiving them for what they did. Joseph's forgiveness was literally empowered by the knowledge that though they were responsible for their sin, look what he says, you sold me. Do you know what Joseph is saying? God's providence was behind it all. Because look what he says, for what you did, you sold me, for God did send me. God's providence was behind it all. In other words, what you thought you were doing, God was doing it for his purposes. Now think about that for a minute. Think about the reality of, of what's taking place here. These, these brothers are stunned by what they're seeing. They're stunned that they're seeing Joseph before them. And as they see him, he says, God did this to preserve life. What an amazing thought. For these two years hath famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in the which there shall neither be 
earing nor harvest, earning nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. As the primary cause and sovereign cause of the events, God overruled the intentions of men. What were the intentions of the brothers? To kill him. God took bad intentions and turned it into, he overruled them and accomplished his purpose. So you could sit here today and you can say, all right, wait a minute. That shows me a lot about God working together for good. We know that Joseph later, in the end of the, the, end of the book of uh, Genesis, if you want to turn there, Genesis 50, uh, the Bible uh, talks about uh, Joseph again. And verse 16, or verse 14, it says, And Joseph returned into Egypt, he and his brethren, and all that went up with him to bury his father after he had buried his father. And when, and after he had buried his father, and when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us, and we will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, for they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we be thy servants. And I love what he says. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not. For am I in the place of God? But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Joseph literally makes it clear that although Joseph's brothers had formed this plan to destroy him, God planned their evil for good. God takes the evil intentions of man and turns it into according to his good purposes. God has decreed, make no mistake about it, God has decreed all things. And where people really struggle with this, does that make God the author of sin? Absolutely not. But through the sinful intention of man, God glorifies himself by providing the salvation through the intents the evil intents of man. Okay, now that's important that we grasp that. Because when we fail to grasp that, we will fail to grasp the truth of what Paul, again, was writing when he talks about these all things being governed by God. That's a perfect example of good, a bad intention with God's good purposes being accomplished. So he says, we know that all things work together for good. Again, eternal good is the emphasis here. Not necessarily our present comfort, our present ease, or even our present joy. The ultimate goal is what for the believer? What are we living for? To one day be with Christ. Okay? 
we are, we are living life now with looking forward to being with Christ. This is just a temporary place. This is a temporary residence. This is a place that we are, and we are to glorify God with every fiber of our being. We've learned about the glorifying of God and how this manifest expectation, this earnest expectation rather, we're waiting for, how we're not just saved by some nebulous hope. We're literally saved by the hope of the blessed hope of Jesus Christ. But our ultimate goal is to be with Christ and to be like him. These are the things that are all working together to accomplish his eternal good. Over in the book of Psalms, there's a, in Psalm 17, there's a statement that's made. Psalm 17, verse number 15. When David, this is one of those uh, chapters or Psalms rather, where David uses the phrase, as for me. That's actually a very interesting study. If you're, if you're into doing any kind of word studies, I would encourage you to study the expression, as for me. Look that up in your Bibles and find where it's used. Here's what David says. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Literally, David is referencing not just physically waking from sleep. He's speaking about waking from death. The wicked enjoy their rewards in this life. For the believer, our rewards are still to come. What was the reward David was wanting to see? The reward of seeing God's glory. The good that's being worked out is looking towards the glory of seeing God's glory, of seeing that. This idea that God is all about our present comfort and that if God really cared, he would give us present comfort. He would give us deliverance from all things is not biblical in its purest form. We know that in the book of Ephesians, Chapter number one, the Bible says this, verse four, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace." wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. So we see here that this eternal good working towards being like Christ, working to accomplish His perfect will. Paul again, Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. This is the promise of eternal good and well-being. It is not a blanket promise to all men. Okay, so here's what cannot be said. I cannot say to every person who lives that your eternal good is at stake here. 
In other words, there is the, the promise that when we use this verse, to them who do not love God, that promise is not there. I cannot make a promise to those who do not love God. It is only that promise being made to those who've received Christ, who love Christ, and who have been effectually called by His grace to saving faith. Now, this is a blanket statement. There is no mercy or grace outside of Christ. That is a blanket statement. There is no mercy or grace outside of Christ. To be outside of Christ is to be outside of mercy. Over in the book of Colossians, chapter number 2, verse number 9. Colossians chapter 2, verse number 9, the Bible tells us this. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Christ is fully God, made visible in the flesh. Paul is reminding the church at Colossae that the believers, believers that true knowledge and wisdom are found in Christ alone. To be complete in Him means everything that a believer needs is found in Christ. A believer is complete in union with Christ. Christ is supreme over all things. So to seek fullness or to seek satisfaction in any other thing than Christ is the definition of foolishness. To them that love God. To love God is to look at Him as fully you're all in all. No other way but through Christ. The theologian and preacher Charles Hodge said this. He said, We cannot deny that God governs all things. He rules according to the counsel of His own will. Who has counseled God? Nobody. Where does God go to get advice? No one. Who does God ask for permission to do anything? Nobody. God has never asked whether or not somebody is okay with what God does. What God allows. Whom God uses. What God establishes. If God establishes a wicked government for His own purposes... Is there unrighteousness with God? Absolutely not. Does God establishing a wicked government or a wicked nation make God the author of sin? No, God takes the sin of man and he glorifies himself through it. These are the deep things of God that we often struggle to understand. What is the, 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 the climax of certainty? All the benefits of salvation we've talked about through all this chapter, all these benefits is fully comprehended and understood when we can say with certainty, God governs all things. The benefits of my salvation are not realized until I come to that conclusion that God governs all things. And that all things are working together, all things are working together for good. To them that love God. Who are they who love God? They are the elect. They are those who are in Christ. Those who believe. Those who are sure. Those who are certain. 
Who are they? The Bible says they're the called. Now, this is going to be important in the days ahead. We're not going to cover this today because we're not going to look at this until we get to verse 30. But that phrase or that word, the called, is going to show up twice in verse number 30. Who are they? Because that's who the promise is being made to. The promise of all things working together for good to them are them that love God. Those who are called according to his purpose. We have not yet received the full benefits of our salvation. We don't have it all. We haven't seen it all. But when we consider that God, not only does God govern all things, here's the, here's the mind-blowing thing. He governs all things and he's doing these things in our best interest. What's actually best for us? Now again, talk to a person who's battling severe health issues. Talk to a person who's battling severe, whatever the issue is. And they're a believer. And you'll find out that if they're not certain of these things, that God governs all things, there's nowhere to look. Folks, I'm telling you, this is easy when you're sitting here just listening to me say these things. But when you're dealing with another person who's going through a difficult trial, and a, a believer, let's say, and you give them this verse, and they look at that verse and they say, I know this to be true. I know what, verse eight, what Romans 8.28 means. It's telling me that God does govern all things by His providence according to His purpose. I, I believe that, and I know that, and I'm sure of that. To know something's good when there's nothing presently good to see, that's faith. Think about that. That's faith. Is it still good when I can't see it? Is God still good when I can't see Him? If I believe the Bible, He is. Is God still good when bad things happen? God's still good. You know, this is the most difficult things pastors have to face is when you have to try to explain to a family... I don't know, how can this be good? And, and again, sometimes the worst comfort you try to give people, comfort is sometimes you've got to be selective about when you use certain words of comfort. Even for a believer, when someone dies, probably not the best thing is, well, they're with Jesus. It's a great, com- it's a great thought, but at the moment, that's maybe not the best thing. Because we understand that this present bad doesn't seem good. Even though if that person was a believer who died, they are seeing the eternal. They're seeing the glory of God. That's what we've been living for. But the bad circumstances appear to have no good ending, just like they did with Joseph. How could being sold into slavery by your own family be good? Was God the author of those brothers' sin? No. He took their sin and he glorified himself through it. When you see the wickedness of people today and you say, how in the world God can't do anything with this? God's going to be at a loss. Can I tell you that every bit of wicked, every bit of evil that's going on in the world today, God will glorify himself through it all? Now, we may not see it in our lifetime. Things may get a whole lot worse. Matter of fact, they probably will. 
We pray for revival. We pray that there would be a great stir. We pray for the great awakening. We pray that there would be another one where a nation would fall on their knees and fall on their faces before God. But this wicked things and evil things that are all around us, if you don't believe God governs all things, it's going to paralyze you. It's going to paralyze you and you're going to think, man, there's absolutely no hope. But yet you have Romans 8, 28 and says all things work together for good. But it's only those to them that love God. That's why we look at the world and we say, listen, I understand even now God's working things together. Eternal good, eternal glory. To know these truths, to be able to say today that God governs these things is the first step in understanding what we'll deal with over the next few weeks. What I'd like for you to do is like I try to tell you every week, I want you to really look at verses 29 and 30 next week. That's what we're going to primarily focus on. And I want you to look at those verses considering what we've learned in verse 28. Because verses 29 and 30 will make absolutely no sense if you don't grasp what we just talked about today in verse 28. In other words, if you pull these verses out of context and just set them aside, you're going to create something that was never meant to be there. If we miss all things working together for good to them that love God, verses 29 and 30 are going to fall flat. You're not going to see it. We're not going to understand it. Because when we start talking about words that we've already mentioned, foreknow and predestinate, we have to keep in mind God's purposes and we've got to keep in mind the word good. Good to them that love God. When we stop and we think about these doctrines, we think about what Paul was saying, don't be afraid of these. Don't be ashamed of them. Don't be ashamed to speak about the purposes and the decrees and the sovereignty of God. There are churches and people who are separating over sovereignty. They're saying, if you believe in sovereignty, we can't associate with you. Sovereignty should be a common denominator between all believers. If we can't agree on sovereignty, you're not going to be able to agree on anything. I mean, literally, the whole Christian faith, the whole faith of the book rises and falls on what I think about sovereignty. And if I don't believe God is sovereign in all things and God governs all things, my faith falls apart. The saving acts of God will begin this process and we'll go a little bit further next week. Let's go ahead and stand all around if you would.